Well, it is good to be here. I, I do want to say, I don't say this often enough, how, how honored I am, how thankful I am to be part of, of what God is doing at Sanctuary. Having planted a church, worked in, in several churches, and been a part of, of quite a few churches, and of course working with pastors every day at the seminary, it is a, it's a gift to be a part of a church like this. And I believe that Sanctuary, because of the leadership that you have, the volunteers that you have, the community that God is building here, is an exemplary church, a model church, a, a way of serving other churches and modeling for other churches the kind of life God calls us to. So thank you for letting me and my family be part of that. Thank God for that as well. Give yourselves a hand. We're going to read from Psalm 8 this morning. I'm going to read from two, two translations. We'll read the entirety of the psalm. I'll read through it first from the New Jerusalem Bible, and then we'll read from the ESV, and I'll make a few comments along the way. Psalm chapter 8. Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is your name throughout the world. Whoever keeps singing of your majesty higher than the heavens, even through the mouths of children or of babes in arms, you make him a fortress, firm against your foes, to subdue the enemy and the rebel. I look up at your heavens, shaped by your fingers, at the moon and the stars you set firm. What are human beings that you spare a thought for them, or the child of Adam that you care for him? Yet you have made him little less than a god. You have crowned him with glory and beauty." made him Lord of the works of your hands, put all things under his feet, sheep and cattle, all of them, even the wild beasts, birds in the sky, fish in the sea, when he makes his way across the ocean. Yahweh our Lord, how majestic your name throughout the world. Now you'll notice as we read through this psalm again that it opens and ends with the same praise. O Lord our Lord, Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And you'll notice as well that there are all kinds of ironies pressed into this psalm. So we begin, Our Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Notice the way that glory is, is named throughout this psalm. We begin by saying his glory is beyond the heavens, meaning it's beyond all created things. All of creation is summed up as the heavens and the earth, and yet his glory is beyond that. Your glory is above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength. So immediately we have, we have this irony that God's glory is beyond all created things, and yet when that glory expresses itself within creation, it expresses itself most perfectly in the mouths of those that are weakest and most dependent. Your glory is beyond all things, and yet it's in the mouths of babes and infants that your strength is established. Because of your foes, to still, to quiet this, the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, I'm left with the question. I'm driven to ask, what is man? So notice, he acknowledges that God's glory is beyond all created things. And then says, and this is the second irony in the psalm, but even when I look at, at the created things, when I look at the heavens, and your glory is infinitely beyond the heavens, but when I look at the heavens, I'm humbled to think, what am I in light of that? I'm so far unlike your glory, I'm overawed even by the glory of the things you've created. Your glory is infinitely beyond. It's without compare. But when I compare myself, compare us as human beings to the heavens, I'm overawed, and I'm left to ask, 
Who am I? What are we that you notice us, that you take a thought for us? What is the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Now here's this other reference to glory. His glory that is beyond all heavens, beyond all created things, now crowns this creature that is as nothing before even the created heavens. You crown this human being, this son of Adam and daughter of Adam with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. And again, notice the irony. What is the human being in comparison to what you have made? And yet you have made this human being to have dominion over all that you've made. This is the way of a God whose thoughts are not our thoughts and whose ways are not our ways. The surprise of this God who is humble. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And then the psalm ends, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I believe there is a wound at the heart of our cultural imagination. And that wound is a failure to imagine rightly what it means to be human. That behind the way we see one another and interact with one another, behind the evils that are expressed in crime and punishment in our culture, behind the evils that are expressed in the abuse of children in our culture, behind the evils of terrorism and war, behind all of the wickedness that we see around us, is this wound. We don't know what it means to be human. We don't know how to think or feel about being the creatures we are. I know, to be lighthearted for a moment, I know my children don't. We were on the, on the way from Tennessee to Oklahoma, and out of nowhere, my son, who's six, says to my daughter, who's nine, we are God. <laughs> to which my daughter retorts, we are not God. And my son says to me, Dad, tell her. And I said, well, Jesus said we are like gods, so perhaps we are not God, but God's, lowercase g. He says to his sister, see, we're God's. And again, she says, no, we're angels. At which point I say, Zoe, we're not angels. <laughs> and she says, we will be someday. No, we will never be angels, right? Perhaps that story tells you I'm not qualified to speak to this issue. <laughs> but see, this is my attempt to respond to my children, right? We're not God. We're not angels. We're not going to be God. We're not going to be angels. But what are we? And in all seriousness, I, do, I am convinced that if we knew who we are, if we, if we knew what it meant to be human, then we would think differently about how we interact with our neighbors, how we interact with strangers, how we interact with our enemies. We would, we would see life differently if we knew what it meant to be human. But in order to understand what it means to be human... Christians believe we have to start with who is God and what does it mean to worship God? So if I'm right that there is this wound at the heart of our, of our cultural imagination, this, this failure to understand what it means to be human, I think a faithful Christian response to that wound is to say we must begin to understand who God is and what it means to worship this God. 
We have to understand the, the triune God we worship, and we have to understand how to engage this God rightly. So we begin not with sociology or psychology or history, as important as those disciplines are. We begin with doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. We begin with confessing the creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, his only son, our Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit. We begin with understanding who God is, what God is like, and and what it means for us to be engaged in life with this God. That's where a true answer to this question, what is man, what is the son of man, begins. And so I want to attempt to draw our attention to who this God is so we can begin to move toward, feel our way toward an answer to what it means to be human. Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, says that if we can proclaim that worship is God's act first, then we shall know how to think of Jesus and how to think of ourselves and our eternal destiny. And notice the progression. First, we have to understand that worship belongs to God. Worship is God's act first. Then we understand who Jesus is. Then we understand who we are. Then we understand what we're meant for. So we begin with God and what God has done. Psalm 8 is one of the passages from what we call the Old Testament that factors most prominently in the New Testament. The apostles and the first Christians come to Psalm 8 again and again and again because they believe that in that psalm they, they get words, they receive revelation about who Jesus is and who this God is that Jesus has revealed. So again and again we have references to this part or that part of this psalm. I want to show you a trio of text from the New Testament that draw on language from Psalm 8. And what we'll find there is that the writers of the New Testament see in Psalm 8 first a reference to Jesus. That he is the one who not only shares in the glory that's beyond all heavens, he is the babe in whose mouth God's strength is perfected. He is the infant through whom God establishes his strength. They believe that he is the reason that God takes mind for us, that God cares for us, that he is the child of Adam, the son of man, who's been given dominion over the works of God's hands, that he is the Lord, not only because he's God, the eternal son, but because as Mary's son, he lives this life of faith through life, through death, and out the other side of death, and is given a name above every name, that he is human being. And because it's true of Jesus, it'll be true of us. This is the way the imagination of the first Christians work, works. What's true of Jesus will be true of us. And everything he experienced, we will experience. You see this expressed, for instance, in Philippians, where Paul says, I'm torn between living and dying. To live is to serve you. To die is to be with Christ. And yet that's not what he wants. He tells them in chapter 3 that what I want more than anything is to die Jesus' death and be raised in Jesus' resurrection. I want to be conformed to him in every way. What Paul is is saying is, I want my life to be a re-experiencing of Jesus' life. Everything that happened to him has to happen to me. That's what it means to be human. So Psalm 8 is about us only because it's about Jesus. But because it is about Jesus, it is about us. Because he's taken on all of our humanity. He's experienced death and life for everyone. He's crowned with glory, so we will be crowned with glory. He's been given dominion, so we are given dominion. So the first of the three texts, Hebrews chapter 2. The writer of Hebrews is 
talking about the world to come, the age to come, the time in which God's kingdom is established on this earth. And he says, when the kingdom is established, God will not establish angels to rule over it, but human beings. Human beings will be given dominion, given a share in God's sovereignty. When all things are set right, human beings will be brought into their destiny. We were made to share in God's sovereignty. And when sin is destroyed and death is defeated and all things are put right, we will share in that sovereignty. And he quotes Psalm 8. And he says, Psalm 8, we don't see it fulfilled yet, but... Verse verse 8, now in subjecting all things to them, God left nothing outside of their control. Talking about human beings. God subjected all things to us. As it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to them. So he says, as things stand now, we don't see our share in God's sovereignty. We don't fully share in all that we've been called to be and to do with God. But we do see Jesus. We do see Jesus. It's not true in our lives, but it is true in his life. And because it's true of Jesus, it will be true of us. He, for a little while, was made lower than the angels. He's now crowned with glory and honor. There's another phrase right from Psalm 8. He's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Because it's true for Jesus, it will be true for everyone. So it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory. What glory? God's own glory. The glory that's greater than the heavens and the earth. The glory that Jesus is crowned with. He's bringing many of us to that glory. He's going to make the pioneer of their salvation. He has made the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one Father. Don't move past this too quickly. Think about how radical, how complete the identification is of Jesus and us. That the one who sanctifies Jesus and those who are sanctified, us, have one Father. We've been brought into Jesus' relationship to the Father. John chapter 1 says Jesus is the one who's in the embrace of the Father. He is toward the Father, infinitely, eternally one with the Father. And what Jesus does is he turns from that embrace to us and opens his life to include us in it so that we have the same place with God that Jesus has with God. We have the same intimacy with the Father that Jesus has with the Father. And that's why we're bold to say, our Father who art in heaven. Jesus calls God Abba. We call God Abba. We've been brought into that kind of intimacy. That kind of nearness to God. We share in Jesus' relation to his Father through the Spirit. And for this reason, Hebrew says, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. He's not ashamed to be identified with us. For us to be his body, for us to be his bride, for us to be the temple, for us to be his friends, for us to be his family. He's not ashamed. Too much of the time we talk about salvation in legal terms as if all that changes is the paperwork, that God chooses to see us differently, but that we're not truly different. So we'll sometimes talk about justification as if it is a change in our status. Justification, atonement, is not a change in status. It's a change in nature. To be brought into relationship with Christ is not to simply have a different standing with God. It's to be a different kind of creature, 
Old things are passed away. All things are become new. There is new creation in Christ and we share in his nature. We are, as Peter says, partakers of the divine nature. And as A.W. Tozer says, through the spirit, Christ invades our nature and sets up his kingdom in our lives. To be claimed by God is to have a radical change at the core of who we are. To share in Jesus' own life. To be human in the way that Jesus is human. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is drawing on Psalm 8. He's writing to the Corinthians about resurrection. He was there in person. He shared with them what resurrection meant, and they completely misunderstood, which almost always happens in settings like that, and perhaps is happening in this very moment. So Paul writes a letter to say, I didn't mean that. I meant this, which they also, by the way, misunderstand. Maybe that's the way this works. Like there's constant misunderstanding and clarification. And, but Paul is writing to say, I meant this by resurrection. And in order to make his point about resurrection, he appeals to Psalm 8, verse 24. Then comes the end, the end of all things. When, he, when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every ruler and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Now in Hebrews 2... The writer says, it's already true of Jesus. All things are already under his feet. It's not true of us yet, but it's true of Jesus. And yet here, the writer says, he must go on reigning until all of his enemies are under his feet. Because what Paul is picturing in 1 Corinthians 15 is Jesus ruling as head of the body, as Lord of the church. And that what Christ is doing through us is bringing God's glory to bear on this earth until The earth is covered with the glory of God like the waters cover the sea. And Paul is saying that through the church, through our work, through our words, through our prayers, through our service, through our bringing justice and peace, Christ is reigning until all the enemies of God are defeated, until every avenger and rebel is silenced. And then Christ, through the church, will present the kingdom to the Father so that the end of all things is a gift. Now, Colossians 1 tells us that the beginning of all things was a gift, that all things were created in Christ, through Christ, and for Christ. So that whatever creation was in the beginning, it was a gift of the Father to the Son through the Spirit. And whatever the end of all things is, it's a gift of Christ as head of the church through the Spirit back to the Father. So that Creation's history is a story of a gift given, received, and given again. That's what it means to be creature. It means to be given and received and given again. And to be a Christian is to know that. It's to know that all things are gift. Paul asks one of his churches, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? He's drawing attention to the basic fact of our human being. We are gift. We were created in the beginning as a gift of God to God, and in the end we will be given as a gift of God to God. That's the secret at the heart of life. You remember Jesus' word, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And if if we had to distill the sickness that diseases our culture to one To one statement, it would be this. We've forgotten that it's more blessed to give than to receive. That what makes us human is giving because we've been created by a God who is eternally giving and receiving and giving again. 
Giving is who we are. It's what we were made for. It's what we were made for. Paul takes up Psalm 8 again in the, in the third of the three texts I want to show you. Ephesians chapter 1. He's talking about the greatness of God's power. The share that God has for the saints. What is, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of this great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet. Here's the Psalm 8 language put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things, all that he has dominion over, to the church. Now notice what's happened. In Hebrews 2, Christ is already Lord over all things and because it's true of him, it will be true of us. In 1 Corinthians 15, Christ through us is reigning over all things until all things are brought into God's glory and then he's going to return creation to the Father. We participate with Christ in returning that gift. And yet here, Paul says, the Father through Christ is ruling over all things to make a gift to us. That all that is happening, all that's playing out in our history now is the work of the triune God to make a gift to us. To perfect creation for us. To bring our world and its history to fullness for us. He's made Christ head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so what we see from all three of these texts is that this is a story of gifts given and received. That to be human, to be a creature, is to be brought into existence by a God who gives, to live with a God who receives graciously and gives again. That's what it means to be human. What is man that you are mindful of him? What is the son of man? A gift meant to be a giver. That's our answer. And this means we have to reimagine worship. I said in the beginning that one of the reasons we can't answer rightly the question, what is a human being? What does it mean to be human? Is because we don't know how to worship. And we don't know how to worship because we don't know who God is. We've forgotten who this God is, what his character is. And therefore, we think of worship as something we do. We gather to worship God. We do it for God. We do it for ourselves. We do it for one another. But we are the ones doing the worshiping. We gather. We sing. We give. We listen. We speak. But worship is not primarily what we do. Worship is primarily what God does. That the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are sharing worth with one another. And we simply get caught in the storm of that gift. Worship is God's interaction with God. But it's such in such a way that we get caught up in it and get to share in it. We worship only because God enables us to worship. So underneath all of our praying is God's praying. As Paul says in Romans 8, we don't know how to pray. But the Spirit intercedes for us. And so we can pray. And we don't know how to worship. We don't know how to say to God who God is and what God is like in a way that's faithful. And yet, the Son and the Spirit take us up into that worship and give us words to say to this God. Give us a way to feel rightly about this God, to gesture rightly about this God, to live in ways that are worshipful of this God. Worship is God's act first. And we get caught in it. We get caught in it. So today, when we come to this table, that's what we're being 
swept up into. Think of it this way. At the Eucharistic table, who gives what to whom? Who's doing the giving? Who's doing the receiving? Who's the guest and who's the host? Well, in one way, when we come to this table, it will be the Father through the Spirit giving us Christ. When Pastor Brent is taking us through the liturgy as we prepare our hearts to receive, he will pray that the Father through the Spirit will make this bread and wine the body and blood of Christ for us. Because we need a gift. We need the Father through the Spirit to give us Jesus, to mark our lives with the character of his Son so that we can give our bodies as living sacrifices, so that we can pour our lives out in honor to God. But also the Son is giving himself to the Father through us. This is the present tense of Calvary. And just as Jesus laid his life down outside the city of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, every time the church gathers for worship, the Son through us is saying again to the Father, here's my life. Into your hands I commit my spirit. This is the way that the Son keeps saying to the Father, I'm yours. And so he's taking us up into that gift today. And the Spirit is giving us gifts. Not only the Father and the Spirit giving us the Son, not only the Son and the Spirit giving us intimacy with the Father, giving themselves to the Father with us, but also the Father and the Spirit and the Son giving us unity. We will pray today, use these gifts to make us one so that we're not only brought into at one with God, but we're brought into at one with one another so we can forgive one another. So we can see one another for the creatures that we are and not the way we've been trained to see one another. And not only is God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit giving these gifts to us, including giving us to one another, we're giving gifts. Today, when you come to this table, you will come to one of your brothers and sisters in this body and they will say to you, this is the body of our Lord. This is his blood. Because God has made it so that you don't receive God from God directly, you receive God from your fellow human beings. They mediate God to you. Thomas Aquinas said a thousand years ago that when we take the role of the priest, we share God with one another. And that's who we're meant to be. In this moment around the Lord's table, we will share God with one another. And when we are scattered from this place, everyone we meet, we are meant to share God with them. Today at lunch, when we sit down with our family and friends and the waiter or waitress comes to our table, we're meant to share God with them, not give them a, a cheesy track. Forgive me, but, but that's, that's not sharing God with them. But looking at them, speaking to them, treating them in such a way that the dignity of who they are comes to be felt. That they somehow sense that we know something about them they don't know about themselves. This is the secret of what it means to be claimed to be a Christian to be claimed as a Christian. We know what many people do not know, that there is a God who is gift and he has marked us with his character and we are most ourselves. We are happiest when we give. It is more blessed to give than to receive and we know that secret and we live it. And everyone we encounter at work, at home, on the road, every stranger, every enemy, we know the secret we know that this creature has been crowned with glory and honor, that this creature belongs to Jesus, that this human being is God's. And that means that all war is civil war. And that means that the way we treat the prisoner matters just as much as the way we treat those who have been sinned against by those who are imprisoned. 
that everyone is marked with this image of God. We know that secret and we live it. And we live it. That's what makes us who we are. That's why God has claimed us. So I end with this. All of this reality came crashing down on me one day in my kitchen when my in-laws came to visit. It's not often that your in-laws coming to visit creates a revelation of God's character. (laughs) But in this case, it did. They were driving in from Oklahoma. We had our kids standing at the door waiting for them. My son, who was four at the time, he sees them drive up and then immediately runs away. And being the wise father I am, I assumed that he was abandoning his post, that he was embarrassed shy. So I set out after him. And he darted up the stairs and into his room. And by the time I got there, he had already grabbed a book. And he was starting back down the stairs. And somehow, either through the work of God or luck, I didn't stop him. And he gets back down to the kitchen. And by this time, his grandma and papa are in the kitchen with their arms full of their, of their bags. And he thrusts this book at her. And you can see, written on his face, the conflict. He's overjoyed that they're there, and so he must give. Because there is something at the heart of what it means to be human, that in joy we know by instinct that you give. And so he does. And yet, he loves this book. She had bought this book for him at Christmas. And so you can see, written on his innocent face, both the need to give and the desire to hold. This is his. And in her wisdom... You also don't often hear sons-in-law talking about the wisdoms, the wisdom of mothers-in-law. And yet, she knelt down beside him, right there in the kitchen, put her arm around him, and she said, Oh, Clive, thank you so much. I know you love this book too. So why don't we do this? Why don't you keep the book here for me? And every time I'm here, we'll read the book together. And I realized... This is who God is. This is what worship is. This is what it means to be human. There's no way to disentangle who's the giver and who's the receiver. Who's the guest and who's the host. Who's giving what to whom? There's no way to know because they're both giving all that they have to give and taking joy in the giving and some of what they're giving and what some of what they're receiving is so bound up together that we no longer know what's, where does giving end and receiving begin? Where does being the guest end and being the host begin? That's what it means to worship. To be so caught up in what God is doing, so brought into the fullness of God's own life, so brought into the share of who God is as Father, Son, and Spirit, that we no longer know who's giving what to whom. And there's just the joy of being there together. Let it be, Lord. Pastor Brent.